Support for the gray area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. With the best comedy, it comes from a sense of moral clarity to some extent. And the best satire is a form of moral outrage, you know, sublimated into the shape of comedy. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media <laughs> So I just had the strangest conversation. Um, I've wanted to have Dave Eggers on the show forever, like forever, like for years. I've been fascinated by him for years. I read the heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius when it came out, read a bunch of other, other novels. But like watching him over time, he created like the 826 series of pirate tutoring centers and McSweeney's and The Believer. Then he began writing these books like What is the What? Um where he was doing this reportage and very earnestly telling the story of other people's lives and the range of things he's done over time, the circle. I'm just so fascinated by people who are able to stay creatively that alive and to start things that remain creatively that distinct. So I want to talk to him for years. Um, and he's just bringing out a new book, a, a satire of Donald Trump called The Captain of the Glory. Uh, and so I got this chance. And I came, I say this in the conversation, I came in this conversation, I'm kind of having a bad day. And feel fractured and all over the place and frustrated. And I was talking to him for a while. And it wasn't really clicking exactly at the beginning for me. I think like because my like mind is all racing. He's giving these like very thoughtful answers. And then at some point midway through, I just realized I've become completely hypnotized by the conversation. And I'm finding it incredibly calming and it's really like landing with me. I'll be, I don't know if you guys will all have the same emotional experience I did in this, but I really enjoyed this one. Um, and particularly by the end, like was really hearing him. So it's a, it's I, maybe it's just me today, but I found it really hypnotic and really wise and calming. Um, it was not the conversation I expected to have a little bit more guru like by the end. But, um, but I think, uh, I think there's a lot to learn from the way Dave Eggers looks at life, uh, which was not, yeah, not, not, not what my questions had been ready for, but, but it's certainly where we went. So I don't know. I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. As always, you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com, uh, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. If you want to send me calm, thoughtful ideas about who to interview on the show next. But 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 here's Dave Eggers. And, and if this one takes a minute for, to click for you, just give it a little bit of time. It did for me, um, but it was really worth it. Dave Eggers, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I've admired the, just the range of things you do forever. And I was trying to think of where to start this, which turned out to be uh, intimidating for that reason. So let me begin here. 
Of everything you've started, created, written, done, what, what are you most proud of? Oh, God. Um, I, I never have a good answer for the most this or uh, I resist these things, I got to say. Um, I will say that last night we had a fundraiser here in New York. Um, I'm just visiting New York for a few days, but we had a fundraiser uh, celebrating the 15th year of 826 New York, which is like an offshoot of our Pirate Supply Tutoring Center there in the Mission District of San Francisco. And uh, the center's been around in San Francisco almost 20 years. And so it's really bizarre to think of how, you know, a few decades go by and through the help of a lot of other people and volunteers and executive directors and board members, all these people, these ideas um, persist. And so I'm sure you'll appreciate this too in 15 years with, you know, and look back and might be somebody else running Vox. I don't know, but you'll, uh, and you'll be sitting on a beach somewhere in Bermuda, maybe not Bermuda, but you'll be able to look back and sort of uh, appreciate not just starting something, but giving it to other people to run better. <laughs> At least that's how it is in my we, we I did case. that. I stepped down as editor-in-chief, uh, I guess, uh, over a year ago now, or maybe even more than that. Um, and now it's being, and now now it's out there being run better, and I get to do yeah. fun podcast interviews. Isn't that the thing? Uh, it's hard it's, to, it's hard to de-individuate, though, if that's a word, right? To mm. not, to, like, are you able to put things down that you started? Yeah, I, what I do, like McSweeney's is run by infinitely more talented people than me right now. And, you know, they have an incredible team. And I, every so often I'll have a notion and I'll say, what about this? And they might run with it or might not. But um, the main thing is just seeing it uh, persist. These these projects that you birthed on a whim, you know, 20 years ago are still around. And um, and they're, they mutate a little bit and they get personalized around the new people running them. And, um, but it's a real kind of, I feel like, uh, you know, weird grandfatherly love for these things to sort of be able to look back and see them grow up and, uh, raised well by their, their new, uh, caretakers. And so, um, so I, you know, at the moment I'm thinking a lot about, uh, 826 and all the centers that have it, it, that have been spawned around the world. There's about 70 that are based on the model all over the world. And it's just a, kind of a, uh, it's a trip to think about. Can you say what the model is? You offhandedly called it a pirate supply <laughs> learning center. And I've been to, I've, I was in the one in DC a number of times. I've, I've been oh, to some of the yeah. others. Yeah. Um, but I think that uh, that as an offhanded description probably didn't make a ton of sense <laughs> to people. So what what, yeah. what what is the model of 826? Well, it you know, it started as an after-school drop-in tutoring center. And um, McSweeney's rented a building in the Mission District. And we were in the back and in the middle was a tutoring center where our staff tutored after school. And then in the front, because of a zoning obligation, we had to open a – we had to sell something. And um, – so we came up with pirate supplies. And so we sold real buccaneer supplies for like the working pirate. And um, and so it's still this way. And you go in there and there's like planks and peg legs and, you know, eye patches. And it's all real stuff. It's not like corny um, <laughs> pirate tourist stuff. It's like for the, you know, the working buccaneer. And so, and that spawned, um, you know, the tutoring center turned into a, almost 2,000 tutors in San Francisco, and we send them into schools all over the Bay Area, and we work one-on-one with students and their writing. 
bring out their voices, polish their writing, try to empower them through the written word. And um, so we're sending tutors into schools all over uh, the city. We're uh, publishing their work, about 10,000 books that we've published over the last 20 years. And then uh, we get them ready for college. So there's all kinds of college access programs. So it keeps growing and growing, and it spawned all of these sister centers around the world. And the second one that we started was here in Brooklyn, where I used to live. And um, and that's, instead of a pirate store, they've got a, a crime-fighting store. So if you go to 5th and 5th in Brooklyn, you'll see the Brooklyn Superhero Supply Company. And it really looks like a Costco for crime fighters. But then there's a secret door that leads into the uh, an unseen back room where there's a tutoring center. So they all have these like ludicrous fronts that kind of destigmatize the place where a lot of kids are going to get extra help. So I'm now going to do a question set that's clearly going to overread this, but it's part of why I've always been really fascinated by your work. Irony and earnestness tend to be seen as in opposition to each other. Uh, right. A lot of your early work was very drenched in irony. And then has a sort of trap door into incredibly deep earnestness. Yeah, well said. I like how you put that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I just took it from your from from your thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a way in which the A26s have always seemed a little bit like a metaphor for for the work you do. And I think that was something that has always struck me about your writing that um, a lot of people will do a number of things, but they're all functionally the same thing. And I think mm. I'm in some ways even an example of that myself. But when you went from doing things like uh, heartbreaking work and and memoir into these very straight books about a life somebody else lived. It was very different from your own. It was not experimental, um, you know, like with What is the What and um, the books about teachers and uh, Somala and I'm sorry, Yemeni immigrants uh, in, in SF who've brought, who've like gotten very deeply involved in the coffee trade, that that was a transition in tone that I don't see many writers or even people make. And I'm curious how you saw those things fitting together, like how that transition happened. Well, you know, what was weird was that the memoir was the anomaly because uh, I was a, I went to journalism school in, uh, in downstate Illinois and taught by old Chicago Tribune and sometimes reporters and editors. And um, I worked at the Daily Paper every day my four years down there. So I was a, you know, news reporter and features reporter and human interest reporter and editor and edited a magazine. And, and then after, you know, in most of my 20s, I was, you know, as a, I was a working journalist for weeklies and websites. And uh, I mean, I did cartooning too. I did all kinds of stuff, but a lot of it was, or most of it was pretty straight. And so I always liked, I had a sense of humor and I appreciated that. And I think I took a gimlet eye to a few or mo a lot of topics. But, you know, when I wrote that memoir, it was a little bit of a left turn from where I had been, you know, most of my work up till that point. And so then after that, when I went back to telling, you know, more or less, I mean, sometimes very straight stories about other people, that was what, that was my roots. As a writer for a newspaper, you were telling stories and you're finding stories and trying to illuminate a life for an issue that uh, hasn't been explained uh, or explained well enough. And um, I see that as my goal most days when I wake up now. And the tone and I think the archness of uh, the memoir is sometimes a little tough on my eyes and ears to look at now. It's a tone that I think I took on maybe for a couple of years maybe. And it's not really, wasn't really the essence of 
Uh, oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess like anybody's young, younger work, it makes you cringe uh, on certain pages and then other things uh, you can uh, appreciate from a, uh, a certain distance. But yeah, I, you know, the, the range of work since is, uh, is a little bit more, you know, true to, um, I'm just digging myself in, uh, uh, the most mushy, uh, inarticulate <laughs> Probably, hole here. Well, every, everybody's, everybody's history is, uh, is, is hard to parse. I'm not going to make you hold in, in heartbreaking work. Cause I think that things people did a long time ago are, are, they're just strange to revisit. But the one question I do have about the tone is that it's always seemed to me, it was hugely influential in how a lot of internet writing began happening. That if you look at things like early Gawker and all and other things, that there's a real lineage back to back to heartbreaking work and other things coming out at that moment. And I'm curious if you think that's true. I wouldn't give any credit to my book. I think it was in the water at that time. There was a certain sarcasm. I, you know, the term irony even, I think is so ill-defined and so amorphous and so I think often misunderstood I think you could, and when I was growing up in Chicago, we just called it sarcasm, you know, and then we grew up with lettermen who really kind of elevated or perfected the form, I guess. And that was how, that was our sense of humor. That was everyone I know. And so um, it didn't seem unique. We thought that was humor. <laughs> humor was sarcasm and, or a little bit of a, a cynical take, I guess, on, uh, anything seeming smushy or even new or uh, everything about California, for example, you know, we thought was very funny. And so it was everywhere and it seeped into a lot of the literature of the time. And then, and then of course the onion came about in the nineties. And I think that was, you know, for the internet, even though it was a, a certain kind of strict format of fake news, it influ I think that was like the, the most influential use of the English language on the web, at least in the early days. At least that's how I take it. This is the way I would push that, which is I, I think it's not quite right to say this was all sarcasm and, and even irony, because I think of that, you know, take the Letterman example or even the Onion example. It's very detached. It's very it's at reserve. And what has always struck me as interesting about a lot of the Internet, the, the way the Internet twisted that um, in a lot of the early blogging is it it's sarcastic, it's cynical, but it's very it's very immediate. The eye is very much in there. Right. If mm. you like look at Gawker, it's confessional. It's like exclamation points. It's new journalism. It's like ironic. It's I'm sorry. It's sarcastic new journalism in a way huh. uh, that yeah. has always felt like a pretty big difference. Ah, well, I mean, I have to admit, I don't, I, did, I don't know anything about Gawker, <laughs> I'm afraid. I know what they did, and I know, I just didn't read it. Um, so I don't, I'm afraid I, I'm speaking out of ignorance. I just know them conceptually as a thing. But you know what was weird, though, and this comes up like a lot when you talk about humor and uh, certain types of humor, or if you call it ironic humor or cynical or sarcasm, I, it, 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 it and it's still, you know, it's exemplified to some extent by Jon Stewart and 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 the talk show hosts now. And um, what was especially uh, acute with Letterman in his later days was that he was a patriot and he was like a somebody that cared a lot about the future of this country, you know. And I think that when you started seeing him 
giving, you know, pretty tough interviews to political candidates and presidents and uh, asking questions that other people weren't. And the fact that it was being done by a so-called comedian made it a little bit more poignant. And I think it tricked a lot of politicians onto his show, thinking it was going to be an easy ride. And then he would put questions to them in kind of a very Midwestern, commonsensical, kind of um, straight-talking way. And I think that there's, with the best comedy, it comes from a sense of moral clarity to some extent. And the best satire is a form of moral outrage, you know, sublimated into the shape of comedy. And and I think Letterman and, I don't know, all of my sort of comic heroes, whether it was Monty Python or Letterman or John Stewart or The Onion, all have a deep subterranean current of the most uh, sincere kind of hopes for the future of the human race. You know, you find it in Vonnegut too. And Vonnegut might be, you know, the godfather of, of it all, maybe Twain. I don't know. But um, I've been rereading a lot of Vonnegut lately and just um, seeing how uh, profoundly he was a moralist and had no problems with explaining his moral point of view and allowing his outrage for our foibles and frailties and failures to come through. That's actually, I was planning to get this a bit later, but it's a good bridge to The Captain and the Glory, uh, which is a satire. But I kept thinking, reading it, that it it, it showed something weird about this era, which is I often mm. think of satire as amplifying or highlighting sort of subtle things that are operating like right on the edge of our consciousness, things that are like nobody's saying or hard to say or hard to grasp. And so you blow it up into the satire, right? You you mm. you, you heighten its contradictions. But like we're in this era where there is no subtlety. Like yeah. everything is right there. Like the guy just says it all the time. Yeah. It's like what what is the role of satire? When you sat down to write that, like what were you trying to to do or show that you felt was being missed and just his tweets every day. I think, I think that we we obviously we're so close to it um, every day, and there isn't ever a break to take a a look and take a few steps back and make any sense of this because there's a new outrage or a new degradation or a new low every day, and we are inherently distracted, and our attention spans are just as bad as scientists and everybody else would say. And uh, we cannot stay on a topic for more than a few days. And the fact that we've even stuck with impeachment for whatever it is, five weeks or so now is astonishing because all of the other uh, crimes uh, and uh, misdemeanors committed by this president have sort of come and gone. And even though dozens, if not hundreds of them are impeachable, I think if you fit them into the purposely loose definition of high, high crimes and misdemeanors. But satire can take a step back and distill things and uh, tell a story that has a beginning and a middle of, and an end, most importantly, because we don't, we're not in the middle of an end yet. We don't know how this is going to turn out. But the luxury of satire is to say, okay, I'm going to eliminate 90% of the noise. I'm going to concentrate on a handful of characters. 
on a much smaller version of our 20, you know, 30, 320 million uh, people, uh, just a few thousand representatives sitting on a, living on a boat. And all of those kind of tools allow you to, you know, see things or tell a clearer, simpler, but no less complex story. And ideally, by sort of making it a little bit clearer and getting rid of the, a little bit of the clutter, you can illuminate some truths that are right under our nose. You've talked a lot about empathy as being at the core of a lot of your work and, and a lot of your projects. And is there a tension between the empathy of a lot of political reporting and just the outrage of trying to pull away the clutter and just see things that are wrong clearly and make people see them as wrong as opposed to see them as nuanced or somehow the product of bigger forces? Thank you. That's, you said, <laughs> this has been the problem for the last three years for me is that I've been covering Trump and I've been going to rallies and going to KKK and anti-KKK uh, rallies. And I've been writing a lot of long form journalism for The Guardian especially, but for other venues. And every time I go to one of these rallies, I meet very reasonable people who I like, who are at the rallies. Some of them are just going because it's a free ticket. We always forget these rallies are free. So that's why there's a lot of people there. It is free entertainment. So, and I meet the people and I say, you know, uh, are you a Trump voter? Yes or no? And why, do, you know, what do you think about this? And do you have reservations about that? And invariably, their intelligence is, uh, it's nuanced. Their beliefs are complex. They have reservations. They don't like everything Trump does, but they, they do like this or that policy. And very often they're voting out of narrow self-interest or one issue alone. And I have the best conversations. And uh, I always come away from these rallies thinking, all right, we'll be okay because all of these people are reasonable and their thinking is changeable, I think. And if they are offered even a few of these issues, you know, uh, addressed by another candidate from another party, they can be moved um, because, and maybe for a candidate that, you know, for whom they don't have so many reservations. So I come away thinking, all right, we'll be, we'll be okay. And um, American people are good hearted at the core and my faith is always quickly restored. And then I spend a few days reading about the latest uh, policy outrages, the suffering of people at the border, asylum seekers, refugees here and abroad, the real world horrifying consequences of the rhetoric and the policies. And then I get outraged again. And I kick myself almost for forgiving the millions who put this person in office. And so I've had this sort of cycle for three years now where I like meeting everyone, you know, usually, and I understand and I have empathy for them. And uh, then the fact that they tolerate the continuous and hard to deny degradation of the office of the president and the rule of law and the trampling of the constitution and, and this just the idea of decency and dignity in DC. Um, then I find myself really, uh, you know, some of that empathy is 
harder to uh, access for until I meet them again, and then we have good conversations. So, what is your and, what is your explanation? Uh, what do you mean? What's what squares the circle? Look, Donald Trump. Say what you will about him; he's not hidden. Like it's something I appreciate about him. He's very <laughs> upfront about who he is, and yeah. in a way that is always striking to me. I know a lot of people, and I know a lot of Trump supporters, and universally, I think they are better people than he is. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. The very first rally I went to was in Sacramento in, before he was elected in August in 2016, and um, it was very obvious. This was a, the same crowd that would have been at a minor league baseball game. It was calm and every age. It was very diverse. It was... Uh, Farmers and urbanites and everybody in between, and um, and it just and and then the guy at the microphone was spouting, you know, both a lot of regular Trump humor, which every so often is actually pretty funny. Um, he was a very he gave a very entertaining hour uh, to these folks, but it was evident that the craziest person of the three or four thousand people in that airplane hangar on a hot day in Sacramento was the guy at the microphone. And it's very strange that we are so okay because <laughs> they will all admit it too. They're, I mean, most Trump supporters do know and will quickly admit he's a madman, but he's their madman. And you know what struck me, and I don't know if you agree, but Trump has his own Trump and that's Giuliani. He wanted somebody to stand up for him and fight like a uh, a dog and do whatever he said and, you know, bend a few rules as long as he was loyal, fearless, and would get on TV and defend him to the death. And that's why he let uh, Giuliani off the leash and do so much damage. But he would rather have a bold, fearless attack dog who made a lot of mistakes than he would a fearful or timid or, you know, practiced insider who wouldn't fight. And in a way, a lot of Trump's voters want, they don't care how mean, ugly, crude, ignorant he is, he's out there fighting, and or that he seems to be fighting. And it struck me as an interesting parallel that the same trait that a lot of voters wanted in, and why they put him in office is why he was so loyal to Giuliani. And oddly enough, you know, this might be, the uh, the linchpin uh, to it all, and and the reason that, well, certainly one of the many reasons he'll be impeached by the House at least. I, I want to go back to the question of supporters, though, and in some ways I found that to be actually the the most interesting part of Captain and the Glory, the 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 kind of scenes where people are deciding whether or not to put this guy in charge of the boat. Yeah, which is, you know, people are looking at somebody and they know they would not want their neighbor acting this way. Yeah, they wouldn't want their spouse acting this way. They wouldn't want their friend acting this way. They wouldn't want their boss acting this way. Are you kidding? And they decide to overlook it. And, you know, maybe some of it is like, the guy's a fighter, guy says what he believes. But there is something that is being reflected in society that is important. And I think that in one of the reasons I'm interested in having this conversation with you is that I think that there is a tendency, if you are in political journalism in the way I am, that you always want to like filter it through the like the material resources lens, right? It's got to be economic anxiety, or it's got to be mm. it's got to be something we can translate into a policy, right? right. Uh, like like what we do in political punditry is we mash up what's happening in politics and like we like chew it up till it's yeah. in some form that we can digest. 
And so like everything goes through this filter till like we've like spit it back out in politics so like Congress can legislate on it. Yeah. Like that's actually not how human beings operate. And so just on the like on the on the level of human reaction, right? The dimension that novelists operate on. I'm I'm curious what you see, what you think people are seeing when they look at this guy and say, that's not normal, but you know what? <laughs> well, I, I think that the, you know, the science says that the main thing that runs throughout his supporters of all different uh, socioeconomic classes and regions is a, a tendency toward authoritarianism. And I do think that that's true. Most of the people that I met that were reasonable and they, they would talk about how things were out of control before and they wanted some order and they wanted somebody to lay down the law and they wanted somebody that would tell it to them straight. Oh, and you realize that there is a hunger for simplicity and a lot of people do not like the complexity of the three branches of government, how slowly things move, how hard it is to get things done, how much debate and... Uh, blather to, you know, to hear them talk about it is how much inaction there is. They really want the strong man every so often to lay down the law and get stuff done. And that is like really, I think almost more than anything, the thread that runs throughout at least all of the supporters that I've met. And then there's the idea that he is the blonde famous man from TV. I, the, the most enlightening conversation I had was I went to a rally in El Paso and Trump was speaking on one side of the street and Beto O'Rourke had his rally on the other side of the street. So I spent the day going between the two spots and interviewing people. I interviewed these two young t-shirt vendors, one African-American, one white woman, uh, and then an African-American guy. They've been, they've been traveling since Trump was a candidate together selling stuff. And they were not millionaires selling t-shirts and hats at these rallies. But, and I said, well, do you guys have health insurance? No, we don't have health insurance. I said, okay, so, and what do you do if you get sick? Well, we go to the emergency room. I said, well, okay, so what would you say to maybe a 1% increase in taxes for the wealthiest Americans, millionaires and billionaires, and that might pay for your insurance? You know, you'd have Medicare, you'd have Medicare for all. And they both barely skipped a beat. They said, well, I don't know about that. That doesn't sound too good to me because... Uh, I'm planning on being a millionaire. And when I'm a millionaire, I don't want my taxes increased. And you can imagine, like, think about that, that uniquely American way to think, A, you know, they're not seeing how, how that system works, how a little, you know, they, they think that they are, and we, this is the history of our country. Everybody thinks that they're on the edge, uh, on the very verge of being a millionaire or a billionaire. And they see themselves in Trump and they don't see that Trump is not working for their best interests. And they didn't see that George W. was not interested in their best interests or their Republican policies as a whole are not necessarily helping them get healthy or are necessarily uh, helping them get a college education, all of these different things. They see though that they might be in that spot with a few lucky breaks in the t-shirt vending business maybe. And so they're thinking ahead. They don't want their future taxes on their millions to be <laughs> raised. It's uh, diabolical and very strange. 
mindset. And I say this about these two guys, I met these, you know, man and woman I met that I had a 45 minute conversation. I loved talking to them and they were such good people, but we have a, a real strange mentality in this country. And I guess we always have, but it, it amazes Europeans and anybody with any kind of social safety net when, to, when I tell stories like this, because it's very unique to us. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. Having tough conversations with your kids is just part of being a parent. And sure, those convos might seem a bit intimidating, but they can also set your child up to go out there on their own. And one of those big talks should probably involve money, how to be responsible with it, how to earn it, and that it's not infinite. If you're looking for a way to put those lessons into action, you might want to check out Greenlight. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications of spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. My kid is only four, but a colleague of mine here in the Vox Media family uses the Greenlight card with his two boys, and he loves it. Plus, the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach kids money skills in a fun, memorable way. You can sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb, arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry... My three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym. I wear them around the house. I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. So one of the things that I always find interesting about Trump is that he operates as a kind of pure id. He yeah. says things that most of us, um, even if we thought them, wouldn't say, certainly would not tweet. Um, yeah. the, the amount of restraint I feel that I'm exercising on myself at every single moment <laughs> of every single day is just this constant, exhausting modeling of what everybody outside of me is going to see when they look at me. Like, it's just like it's yeah. horrible. And he operates in this way that is totally without it. Um Remember when Dave Chappelle, when he was a candidate, Chappelle said he was admiring the fact that he just said his mind is free. Yeah. He has no, he just said, you got to admire that. His mind is free. And I thought, I don't know, probably butchered it, but it was a uniquely Chappellean uh, observation. But this is a way in which I think a paradox or a tension of this age is that the internet, the whole way we live our digital lives, for most of us, what it's created is an even more paralyzing sense of constant social evaluation. 
at the same time that in many ways it seems to prize people who are able to just totally let go of that and be free. And you were pretty early in writing The Circle, which is a much more dystopic take on Silicon Valley, which I think a lot of people caught up to a couple years later. Um, and you've talked about this idea of situational internet madness, um, <laughs> this thing where all of a sudden we exist in this world where the norms we had to help us cooperate are, are, are breaking. I, I'm curious whether or not you see uh, like a bridge in those things, like whether or not you think um, Trump and some of the other things we're seeing are just like, this is just our society going through situational internet madness. And over time, we'll figure it out. Remember when Obama was called the first internet president because he tweeted, right? And, um, and you look it up. And I, I remember looking it up, you know, a few years ago after Trump was elected and everyone, you know, there's all these articles about him being the first internet president. He wasn't at all the first internet president because he was still, all of his messaging was done, you know, with a White House seasoned, reasonable, you know, vetted by 30 lawyers kind of style. Yeah, remember, if he if he was the one who wrote a tweet, it would have his lowercase initials on it. Right. Like, that was right. their thing. The other ones were not him. And even then, you you know, as a lawyer, he was sending that through at least a handful of advisors and lawyers just to make sure, because this is going to be part of the historical record and it would have a lot of power. So... But Trump is really the first internet president. He is the manifestation of all the worst aspects of the internet. The uh, speed of, of uh, unreasonable judgment, the typos, <laughs> the inability to spell anything correctly, the uh, react before thinking, the weird vitriolic filter that somehow like the most reasonable people will turn into raging maniacs online. Um, the way that it is just kind of a, an outrage machine. I think that Trump in person, uh, I mean, I, I actually was just talking to somebody that had had a lunch with him way back when. You know, he, he said, well, he's not without his charms, you know, like in person. And I think that the his access to Twitter has been one of the real towering degradations of the office of the presidency. Because otherwise, if he's giving a speech or if he's giving a press conference even, you know, I think the, the at least the verbal and, and uh, demeaning uh, and embarrassing messaging that will, all, that will always be part of the uh, historical record, none of that would be there. I think you would have had like a tiny fraction of the shame that we live with, at least in terms of that his oratory. And I mean, you know, or his... Uh, his social media usage would be, uh, if we took all that away, I think all of us would still be living through a very uh, tough time and, and his policies would still be in place. But I think some of the shame that we live with and the just incredible embarrassment would, be, would go away. But if you think about it, yeah, all of the internet madness that, that people uh, succumb to when they use social media for whatever reason, I still have no idea because we've all been guilty of it. Since the advent of email, I remember writing, you know, suddenly all, I'd get my dander up and be writing in all caps and then saying things that I would never to say to anybody in person. And luckily, you know, we caught on at, at least a lot of us early enough to say like, okay, this is a medium that has a weird power over us and it transforms us just by using it. And so ideally, most of us solve that in our 20s and 
and use it without endangering ourselves or the idea of civility. But he's the he is the uncensored id uh, of the internet, and it was only a matter of time. I mean, in a way, it's. It, if Black Mirror had been around 10 years ago and they wanted to create sort of some dystopian idea of uh, what would be the worst electoral manifestation of uh, how we use the internet, they would create this monster. They absolutely would not. I think about this all the time. It would not in any way be believable. Like it would just be, <laughs> well, they be wouldn't such do it. a ridiculous yeah. episode. One of the things he's able, Trump is able to do is it's like a black hole of attention. Like so, I I'm gonna pull us off of him because I think it's a good yeah, Trump yeah. conversation, well, and I've right? wanted to talk to you for years. Yeah, that's exactly so, it. Um, yeah, like I call it the Trump trap door. It's like in any conversation, you're just walking along and like you fall right through, <laughs> and you're like, then you're the, yeah. the rest of your dinner is about Donald Trump. Like we're just here yeah. for four hours talking about yeah. immigration, you know, whores. Um, but on the internet, you gave this great uh, lecture at Penn uh, that, in terms of how it changes us, you told a story about a friend and an email read receipt that I thought was super perceptive. <laughs> and I'd like you to, to to retell it and explore that a bit with you. Well, that happened in New York a lot of years ago. Um, well, I try not to go to New York. Yeah, well, it was in the late 90s because I lived here a few years then. And so, you know, it was a reasonable friend of mine that we used to get together once a week for lunch. And um, anyway, he sent me an email one day. I didn't I didn't read it. I looked at it, but I didn't answer it. That was it. And then I saw him on the street a few days later, and he said, well, how come you haven't answered my message? I emailed you a few days ago. And I said, oh, I haven't read that yet. I haven't been online. And he said, well, I happen to know that you did get the message, that you were online because you read the message, and I have software that tells me exactly when you read it at you know 3.24 p.m. on Monday afternoon. And I got an e a receipt to say that you did read it. And I thought... Well, at that moment, and this was like 98, that's when I think everything changed, at least in my mind. And that's when I started taking notes about the internet that we had known, which was like AOL and dial-up and messages from your grandmother and a few websites and um, changed into this tool of interpersonal surveillance. And, uh, and, it, and that was the point of that lecture to some extent was to say, we can't just blame the big five companies and the surveillance that they do or the NSA, because we are constantly using these tools on each other and thinking it's okay, whether it's getting email receipts, whether it's uh, parents surveilling their kids, even at college, whether it's spouses surveilling each other through their smartphones, whether it's all the, you know, the spying that people do on each other, whether it's surreptitiously taking photos of of each other because it's so easy now you always have a you know high level camera in your hand i think that we don't necessarily realize how quickly we've evolved and how quickly we have superseded our idea of of our right to privacy by our right to know and anything that we think that we want to know where somebody lives where what their you know unlisted phone numbers arrest record anything all of these things are easily accessible and there's all kinds of private companies that have uh, set up shop to provide anything we want to know about anybody. And this is not giant tech company doing it or the government doing it. This is the public demand, you know, there's a marketplace for this. And I think that we've just become so comfortable with every level of surveillance and every new low of uh, 
of our intrusion of our privacy. And I, you know, I wrote something that I haven't published just about how tolerant everybody is about every new <laughs> revelation of the in-home assistance. Like they say, well, you know, well, of course this machine wouldn't be listening to my conversations. It's just there to tell me the weather. And then we find out that it is listening and they say, okay, well, as long as it's not humans listening, then that's fine. As long as it's not recording. Okay, I mean, as long as it's not archiving. Yeah, well, that would be a, a different thing. And then we find out not only are they listening, recording, but there's 10,000 people employed uh, to uh, listen to your conversations and ostensibly to improve the software. And then they say, okay, well, as long as it's anonymized and they don't know who I am or whatever, I guess it's okay for me never to know who's listening to what when the machines can be turned off and on and they can turn themselves on at any at any time. And all of these levels of like, even 15 years ago, if you had were to say that there was a machine that you were going to put in your home voluntarily that would listen to everything you say and store it in a place that you have no knowledge of, no access of, and no control, nobody would, you know, run to the store uh, to get one of these things, it would seem to be beyond any dystopian fiction. But of course, there's you know hundreds of millions in homes now, partly because we've evolved to the point where we just have no. I think our ideas of what privacy means or our value of it is almost completely gone. I think there's like a few square feet and our skulls that we find that we still retain. Like okay, there's the bathroom. There's the bedroom after a certain hour or whatever, and then there's the space in between our brain, but nothing else in no other place do we expect privacy. And I think that's a really, you know, radical shift in the, you know, the history of human evolution. And it happened in 10 years. Do you think that's something that was always true about us and has simply been revealed that we didn't care about the privacy that much or it was something that um, got elicited from us? You've got this nice line in that piece where you say, you know, what happens is we want more information, often information to which we're not actually entitled. I was reading that and thinking about some of these examples that the thing is we endlessly want information that is like actually bad to have, right? Like your, <laughs> your friend with the read receipt, like let that make his life better. Oh, you no. know, when I'm sitting around being like, well, how many retweets did this get? It's not making my life better. Like oh. nobody, nobody throws me a parade for retweets, but I do yeah. feel bad if they don't get it or like somebody else's podcast is, you know, above mine in the rankings. It's like, yeah, the no, metrics are really eroding our humanity. Yeah, you I mean, they all really this are. stuff like it's I don't know if it was always in me or it just gets pulled out of me. Like, I think that's what I always wonder about that. Is the Internet revealing things about us or is it um, changing things about us? Like like in a kind of Neil Postman, the medium is a message way. I think the latter for sure. It's just like if you released a new drug into the world that had been cooked up in a lab like LSD or whatever. And then you found that they would ha that humans had a real, uh, they'd liked it a lot. And even though it killed them or degraded their lives in some ways, it, it, the internet was like that. Something cooked up in a lab, it was a new force. And it's been mutated many times and many of its iterations or permutations are really bad for us. And there's so many things that are so good for us. It's just that so often we take something good and then we put a surveillance into it. We put uh, 
the you know utter lack of privacy into it, and then it, and and we also put in ugliness somehow ends up into it. And those three things are very surprising to me, given I was around when it started. You know, like you know, ninety two, I was twenty two, and seeing it pop up and email and everything, it just seemed like oh that's convenient. I like to be able to send a message to my uncle and uh, he gets it immediately. And, you know, there's so many nice things. And even, but then the metrics part, like who, what kind of twisted mind would think about quantifying how many, you know, and, and quantifying hearts and quantifying thumbs up and quantifying your friends and the other people's friends. And this, the datification part was uh, so unexpected, at least for me. And I think for some of the hippies that were instrumental in the early days of the internet and who I've met since. And I think a lot of people were just really shocked, like, God, I didn't see all of this, the the datification, the quantifying, the ranking, the numerical assignations to every part of our lives being so quickly embraced. There are a couple of really fascinating ways in which the way the internet evolved or what it is revealed, I think, defied early expectations. And like this to me is one of the big ones that I, I remember the early internet too. It's so weird that we're, you know, you're a bit older than me, but not that many. It's going to be crazy that like we are the people who remember a time before the internet, right? Like it's going to, like <laughs> yeah. my son, like he's going to look at me like a dinosaur. But the internet was supposed to like vault us into this world of the mind beyond like the petty social and geographic and like like the petty humanness of it all. Like we were all going to become, you know, like cyborgs. And the thing that is so fascinating to me about the internet is they built these tools and like, well, what's going to make somebody use these? And they're like, well, like what if we let people do social stuff on them? Like we just like start like letting people have friends and hearts and rank, you know, how popular they are. And I don't think anybody had any idea, like not the foggiest idea, how powerful those drivers of our behavior were. Like, like I don't think they, I still don't think they actually even quite realize like what it is they're playing with in terms of like identity creation and other things. But just the way that what the internet <laughs> revealed about us is that if you give me a way to rank how popular I am, like that's it. Like that is the only thing I will do forever. Um, is just a, like, there you go. Like that's, that's what, you know, that's, we've made life an endless high school cafeteria. <laughs> well, there's also the false comfort of data determinism, you know, to say, well, I mean, and I think Rotten Tomatoes is such a fascinating example and other aggregators of ratings where, you know, a messy, complicated form of art can be reduced to a number. And instead of having to read a bunch of reviews and sort of suss through Pauline Kael's or Anthony Lane's um, assessment of a movie, you can just go and you see the numerical aggregate. And that somehow, I mean, what's amazing to me is that there is no pushback anywhere about what has been done to film in terms of that being reduced to a metric. And it will come to every other art form for sure. I did that in the circle, just sort of saying, you know, paintings, of course, are going to be rated and They'll change and be hacked and gamed. But there's this need that we have, a, I think, a, a hunger that I don't think everybody saw coming for the, that comfort that comes from, oh, well, that's a 62. This is a 41. 
your credit score is a 702, your SATs are whatever, the college she, you went to is ranked best. a 19. <laughs> all of these things. Right, like you ladder all the way up back to our old conversation. <laughs> well, exactly. It used to be kind of like a, just a, a pretty rare occurrence to see a human being or something created by a human reduced to a number. But now there is nothing that is not numerically assessed. And we are, have come because it's like wisdom of the crowd. Like, you know, if you have 10,000 ratings on whatever site, it has to have some, you know, uh, accumulated wisdom of all of these people. They must be right. And um, so if you see, you know, that everybody's uh, favorite work of epic poetry is uh, Beowulf and it's got a 91.3. Well, that, and from 10,000 people, uh, that there's a certain amount of like, well, that that's science. <laughs> that's just, how do you deny that? There's been so, there's such a big, large control group of people and there's a number attached to it. And so we've got that squared away. And now we move on to which play of Shakespeare is the best. And let's do a, you know, a poll online for that. And it's a real um, insanely, uh, reductive and and scary trait, and we are at the very tip of it. It's gonna get so much worse. And and you know, Kathy O'Neill writes so brilliantly about how this is going to impact and maybe re-stratify or you know enforce uh, class stratification even in a democracy or ostensible classless society like this, where where you're born, what zip code, what college, all of these things are going to be, there's going to be numerical aggregates that are going to determine your access to credit, even more so than now. And your experience in life and access to opportunities is going to be really limited by our caterwauling impulse to seed control and decision-making to algorithms. Because we think humans are too fallible Algorithms are infallible, and so more and more we're going to seed decision-making to machines so that we don't make a mistake. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kids' shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. 
Visit Mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. I read that you don't have Wi-Fi in your house. Is that still true? Yeah, I never had Wi-Fi. Um, I don't have a smartphone. I uh, No shit. Oh, no. I've got my got my flip phone right here on my on the table here in the studio i uh yeah it was not going to improve my life in any measurable way so i yeah, never but that's got a one. hard thing to hold like i i, I don't want to just skip that over like that's a <laughs> like it's the year of our lord 2019 like you've been you've been holding out for a long time well i you know i've i'll borrow them from people if i like hey can i look this up or something but um i uh there's not a lot of tools on a, on a smartphone that that would improve my life personally. And I've seen how everyone I know every day wants to throw it against the wall and they love it and they hate it. And, you know, they have these incredibly complicated relationships with this device. And I think, why would I start, you know, uh, it's like starting heroin or something. Like, what's the upshot of this, uh, of this uh, drug that you're going to be uh, fighting with for the rest of your life? And so my phone makes calls and it makes, uh, and I can text. It takes me a little while. It's got that predictive text. I don't know what else it does. It has a calculator, so that's good. Why and, don't you? Uh, why don't you have Wi-Fi in your house? Same reason, you know. I it, it's also distracting, you know. I would pretend to be looking something up for research, and then I'd spend the next two hours watching, you know, soccer on YouTube. And um, so I can't be around something so powerfully distracting, and especially since. I like to have like an intentionality about a day where it's like, what do I want to do today? Well, I need to do this and I need to do that. Very little of it is going to be done on a Wi-Fi connected laptop. I write on a laptop, but it's never been connected to the internet. It's, uh, it's 13 years old too. And so I don't like that having to update every piece of software that I thought I bought <laughs> you know, a decade ago. I sort of like to just buy a piece of software and buy a machine and use it. And um, so you can see how uh, crotchety I sound. No, but, but you know, know what, what, what? The thing you actually sound to me is productive. And yeah, I mean, the, the, you know. the, the myth, I don't want to call this a myth because I live in it and believe it. Um, the argument that I think most of us accept, even if we have discomfort about where it's all going or how it all feels day to day, is... Yeah, it may be fine for like some weird academic or writer or something who, but like for me, like I'm like involved in the world, but you, you know, you're involved in A26. You've got like these like groups of kids coming together as young leaders. Yeah. You're doing children's books. You've got yeah. like a tw like you've got more stuff going on um, than most people I talk to. And so how do you, like, I feel the thing that everybody says is that, well, like you got to be able to, people have to be able to reach you. You, know, yeah. you got to be able to order an Uber. <laughs> Like, well, you're, yeah, you're not doing I'm, that. I mean, here I, I mean, I'm in New York. I take taxis, and uh, the taxi drivers all want to talk about Uber, and we always have a good talk. But you know, um, otherwise, I get online in the morning, and uh, usually for about you know ten minutes or so, I get the messages, and then I go offline until five, and then I get online again, and I send out messages uh, then, and so I'm reachable. You know, I've got to be in touch with the people that run these nonprofits that I try to help and, you know, that, that we started way back when. And and so I'm in touch with a lot of people. And it's just that being forever in touch, you can't write that way. You know, it's 
to write a novel and be on page 630 of something, you know, it's a deep, deep dive. It takes half the day sometimes just to remember where you are. You know, you're going really far below the surface. And um, But if I had a thing dinging next to me constantly, I would stay, you know, I'd be in the shallows the whole time. And so for me, it doesn't work. It can't work. And it's like trying to write in the middle of a circus. And what we forget though, and you know, I so admire people that can toggle, but, and when, you know, when I talk to friends who teach in colleges, it's like having a television on the desk when you're in college, like you're, you're at a lecture, but you've brought a television and you put it on the desk, right? And with the screen facing you, next to the television is a phone. Like imagine an old type, you know, uh, standard, you know, phone with the receiver and everything. You've set that up next to you. You've set up a little movie theater. You've set up, a, you know, maybe a stack of letters that you want to answer, all while your professor's trying to talk, right? And the number of sort of, we forget that all of these things are in that little device. It is like the most profound combination of powerful distractions. And it's all in front of you. And um, I read a really good piece recently about, you know, a professor who banned cell phones in his classroom and how that went. And, um, and how the vast majority of the students, even those who were really mad about it at the beginning, ended up thanking him at the end because they were able to kind of have an excuse to be disconnected. And I was on a panel, actually, uh, I would moderated a panel of teenagers. This is a, a panel put on by uh, Common Sense Media. And um, Jim Steyer and I were uh, the moderators and talking to five teenagers about their habits and all, we didn't know who, what they were going to say. We didn't pick them for any particular point of view. All five of them said they were like uh, in a daily existential crisis with their relationship to social media and none of them had it under control. None of them were sleeping enough. They were sleeping with their phones at, on their pillow. They had not created a, a balance. And one of the kids, really incredibly uh, eloquent and passionate young guy, said, you know, they won. These companies won. They've ruined my generation. I give up. And I thought, I came away just so mad at the addictiveness of the tools, the purposely addictive tools, and the way that they do target teenagers and make these devices so appealing to them and, and the software and the apps and everything so appealing to them. But I'm also mad at, as a society, the fact that we give these insanely powerful tools to kids too young. Because that was my last question for them. I said, how old should you be? How old would you give yourself a device if you could do it over again? And I think the youngest anybody said was like 16 or never. And they all felt like they'd lost control of their lives because of this device, just like anyone, like an addict would be. And we just have to really come to grips of, with how powerful they are, how addictive they are. And we've got to stop assuming that kids need these to be connected or need them to be social or need them to do their homework. All of these things are just so ob such obvious fallacies. And we've got to really think about what's best for them and their mental health and to figure out a new balance, a new plan. I want to go back to something you said because, look, like I, for all that, I'm plugged into everything at all times. 
uh, I'm very crotchety about it all on the show and have <laughs> Kel Newport on board. People be like, yeah, like there's Ezra like whining about phones again. But it's something that I want to go back to the experience you were talking about of being on page 605 of a novel. So I just finished um, not a 600-page book and not a novel, but uh, but a book. And that experience of once I was far enough in, how much time it took to just get started, how much time it took to rearrange where I was in my own head was a really hard part of it that nobody had prepared me for. And I'd love to hear as somebody who's written I don't know, 700 books. <laughs> you mean um, you were writing a book? I just wrote a book, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, okay. And I'd love to hear for you what that experience of being very deep in it, like what the experience of being in the depths versus the shallows feels like, what it means, what's different about it, how you get there even. Well, I recommend to everybody to write a book. Um, it, it doesn't have to get published, but your brain will change. And I think it's, an, it's a mind expander for anybody and I think you you improve your mind to such an extent. It is just like a marathon upon marathons intellectually. And um, it's therapeutic, you know, to write whether it's your own story or, or a novel or sci-fi, whatever it is. It is centering. It is uh, calming. It's meditative, you know. And so, you know, these days I spend the first maybe two hours reading in the morning and then I get started usually taking notes on paper <laughs> for another couple hours. And then in the early afternoon, I start writing passages and uh, something, you know, usually out of order. I don't write in order that often. So I'll write a passage that about some idea that I have that I don't know where it'll fit in or I have a vague sense of where it'll fit into the novel. But, you know, that, that the, the whole day is so calm you know, and, you know, it's weird being in New York where it's so busy you know, these last few days to sort of be thrown into this this kind of schedule again where it's just moving so fast and uh, and everybody is, you know, connected at all times. And um, it's, I feel like, a, you know, Rip Van Winkle coming back here, being away for a while. But uh, I don't know if that's, if that's uh, helpful. All I know is that you know, Jaron Lanier, who is a hero of mine and- uh, Yeah, he's amazing. Think, he's been on the show twice. Oh, yeah. He, you know, I think he always explains things better than almost anybody else. You, I think Karis Wisher explains things really well. Kathy O'Neill is a genius. And then, and, Jer and Jaron, you know, he's, he was, he would talk about experimenting on yourself. He's like, you know, how do you feel best at the end of the day? Is it being constantly connected? Was that- how you, you know, and, and I think for a lot of people it is, they're, you know, they have a, they somehow make it work and it's, they're balanced and it's great. I think for far more people, there isn't that feeling of balance and how are you going to regain it? And we owe it to ourselves to experiment on ourselves, to feel like, how do you want to live? How do you go to bed at night thinking like that was it? That was, uh, that was the right experience in life for me, you know, and whether it's, uh, do you have to swim in the ocean every day? Do you have to, you know, spend, uh, two hours disconnected, you know, uh, uh, Tiffany Schlein just wrote that book about, um, you know, the tech Shabbat. And so she's figured out that kind of balance and whatever it is, you have to arrive at a place that you control, that you have made a decision. <laughs> and I think too many times we think, we, we, we've seeded that decision too. 
oh God, I could never connect, disconnect for a week because I don't, if whatever reason. And, or I have to always have the phone on me or else, I mean, all of these things are fallacies too. We've sort of boxed ourselves in, but I think if you experiment on yourself, like well, what is the life you want to lead and get yourself to that place. And for me, you know, I, I recommend, you know, uh, however you want to do it, but at least a few hours of, of unconnected time a day, it's just going to, uh, recharge you. It's going to allow all of your synapses to, you know, re, uh, a, a bit of rest. And, um, and you, you know, I, I agree with those that say you need to be bored at some point in the day. You need to have extreme downtime. Kids do too. You know, all of these things that have been sort of, you know, proven again and again, and scientists again and again, you know, and, and uh, pundits and new age the theologians everybody says the same thing but we still i think people still struggle so much with being disconnected for a time and uh and maybe it comes from a good place where people feel like they want to be accessible and they want to be reached by their loved ones and i think maybe it's coming from a good place but you know we also have to trust that those loved ones will be there if we're, if we don't talk to them for three or four hours straight, you know, like, uh, we've got to, uh, regain a sense of proportion and balance. To reflect a emotional experience here, I came into this interview today, this conversation, just like I had a, like, didn't sleep and like fractured day and running around mm. doing an impeachment podcast and feeling pissed off. Like, why are my days like this? And I got to run from this. I find talking to you incredibly calming and grounding. I did not expect, <laughs> I did not at all expect the particular emotional valence of this conversation to, to, to be what it is. Well, you know, what's weird is that I, we've been in Spain for a couple months, well, since August. And, and that is even, I mean, I feel like I don't live like a high stress life in San Francisco, but I have lived a much higher stress life, but these days I'm semi-retired uh, from most of our projects. And like we were talking about, they're run by much more talented people. And um, But being really one more step removed and be living in a village in, in Spain and uh, really having the days, uh, I just feel like it's really hard to come back to the pace of life here. And um, uh, But I do feel... Uh, you know, that, that sense like, boy, I really, I do really know what my ideal days look like. And, um, and they're a lot simpler than uh, my life was in San Francisco and a lot simpler than it was 10 years ago. And, um, and, but that's, that's one person, you know, but I think that everybody's got to figure out what is that, uh, what is that structure? There's a funny way in which something I was reflecting on while you were talking is you, you said a couple of times you have to be able to really look at yourself and say like, well, what, what felt like a good day? Mm. And I've had the experience for the past couple of years and it actually came out of a book leave I took mm. of, I was, we were actually in Half Moon Bay, not far from here. It's part of why we moved out to the West Coast, um, from DC. Mm. And, you know, we are in like a really small place, like really cut off. Like I always think of myself as a super urban person. Mm. And the idea was like everything would be really small, you know, and kind of boring. Yeah. And instead of being small and boring, it felt great. Like it felt yeah. bigger. Like there was more space to think. You could like have bigger ideas. You could actually be much more vibrant in, in your work. 
And it changed a, a lot for me personally because what it, what I realized, and I'm not saying I've been able to put this fully into play, but is it my belief about what kind of person I was and what I would like was wrong, mm. right? That like I often live a life as if like, what would I like the book of my life to read like? Uh, right. You know, like what would, if I was like watching this, like what would I want the character of Ezra to have done? Um, which <laughs> is never done is the key thing. Right, right. Which is never to like stay at home and read. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's always like to go do the cool thing. Um, yeah. But well, there's that balance, you know, you do have to do something. Yeah, maybe. But but the, the thing that, that I think is interesting, it, and it goes back to our conversation a couple minutes ago about measures, is that I think for a lot of us, and I certainly feel this, you're one of the things that not just digital life, but a lot of things that you do, pick, you know, the p- pictures on your phone is it's like have some proof that you had a day, right? That like, you know, I got some stuff done today. You know, I, I like like sent out some tweets or everybody liked my photo or whatever it might be. <laughs> I'm, I'm with my son a lot. I have a, an eight month old and yeah. I'll be doing something adorable and I'll like whip out my phone to like capture it for myself or for the future, or for my family. And he'll immediately stop doing it because he was doing it with me. Uh, and it happens like all the time. And I'm always yeah. like, I am the worst. Right. And but it comes from love, you know? Like, well, or does it come you, from this desire to, this is a little bit what I'm getting at, that does it come from, it is very hard to force yourself to see how something is really feeling hmm. versus like looking at yourself from the outside and trying to measure it all somehow. Like trying right. to like win the competition of your own life as opposed to experience <laughs> your own life. You know, there's a balance because obviously we can't all live on a beach from day one till death. You know, like you have to make yeah, a living. Absolutely. You have to have, maybe have impact, help people, you know, like make yourself useful. So there's that too. So there's, but there's a balance. And I think whatever it is, and you know, last night I met all kinds of tutors from 826 New York and they were college students or bank clerks or advertising uh, copywriters and, you know, for them, tutoring is part of that balance. Like, and I, again and again, people say, this is the best part of my week is the two hours, no phone, because we don't allow the tutors to have phones like in the, at the table. And it's just a table and two kids. I mean, a, an adult and a kid and a piece of paper maybe between you. And, um, you know, that's for them part of their, that centering, that balance, that kind of like, I need this this is my humanity bath, you know? This is my, uh, uh, where my soul is replenished, you know, by this young person and and their uh, completely uh, guileless uh, approach to life and, and, and work. And let's just get this homework done and how, what a pure, simple thing that is to do and to go home and feel like you got something, you know, something, real done you know that almost feels better than anything else you can do is to like you know get get us an eight-year-old's homework done but um but i do think you know we're so much of our you know the what the technology does is it it helps us or we think we are being we are getting a better measure of how we've used our time on earth and part of that is well i'm a good parent because I'm taking a lot of pictures and I've documented all the fun we've had, you know, and they're going to be so happy when they're older because I've well-documented it and their peers will have their parents well-documenting their time. So I've got to do all, you know, there's that fear of doing it not quite thoroughly enough that I think drives everybody's sort of 
you know, obsession with documenting youth. And the same thing with so many of these numerical measurements. It's like, well, I do have this many friends, so that's good. And then I compare them to however many friends other people like me have. All right, that's about <laughs> right. It gives you all of these kind of false uh, sense of, uh, of your relationship with the rest of humanity. Are you where you need to be? Are you ranked about the right place that you expect to be? And, um, and I think that it, that's where I think so much of anxiety from teenagers, and you talk about these skyrocketing rocketing depression rates and all of these things, I do think that we were not meant to measure ourselves quite as much as is being done and to think so much about ourselves. There's only so much thinking about yourself you should do <laughs> on a daily basis and or even your family you know we are meant to uh be looking outward whether it's at the sea or at a problem or you know how we can uh, alleviate the suffering of other people or build something lasting and meaningful um there's all of these things and they don't involve you you know and they don't involve your self-documentation or our you know measuring how many people liked our our last tweet you know that feedback loop the doing something because we've got a certain, you know, kind of reward um, also sometimes degrades the essence of why we're doing it, you know? One thing that that brings up that I want to make sure I covered with you in our, the remainder of our time together is that something that you've done really well in your projects or that I've thought you've done really well in your projects like Believer and um, uh, A26 and others is the thing that metrics and scale and other things can do is it flattens. It makes everything like everything else. Um, mm -hmm. So you're getting bigger, more people get involved, more of the pressures that everybody else is part of. Um, I felt this with things that I've launched and that, you know, you start with a pretty distinct vision and part of becoming successful is to become less distinct. Um, mm. And you can see this in very big ways, right? Like Facebook is like, or Google begins with like, don't be evil. And at some point it's like, I mean, like not too evil. <laughs> don't be too evil. <laughs> right. And I'm curious how you've, in the same way that it seems like you've stood in your own life against a lot of pressures of the age, just like how you've stood as you've built things against what I'm sure have been a lot of offers to take them big in ways would have made them a lot less like themselves. Yeah, you know, early on, I realized the tension between art and scale and integrity and scale. Every so often you can do something on a large scale exactly as you want to do it. And that's, that happens for sure uh, in film and, you know, uh, you know, if you write for the New Yorker, there's a massive audience and it's, you know, brilliantly edited and, uh, uh, and it has, I think the highest integrity. And I'm sure that's what you're trying to do at Vox too, is, uh, is retain that integrity and reach as many people who will want to read that uh, as possible without you having to compromise it. And um, that's the ideal thing. But you often find that there's a ceiling. And uh, the Believer's ceiling was relatively low. The McSweeney's ceiling was relatively low. We didn't have any capital ever to like buy subscribers or, you know, to expand, uh, to roll the dice. It was always every subscriber helped pay for a few more copies that we printed. And um, it always grew organically that way. But th that's a, it's a tough thing when you realize like, God, I guess the audience for this literary magazine will never exceed 10,000 people. And you realize that that's it. Unless I guess some, 
you know, you pour $10 million into the rolling the dice and seeing if there's more people out there for it. But, but in our case, you know, that was some years ago, I came to that, uh, you know, conclusion and, and was at peace with it. And the editors of the believer, Heidi Julevitz and my wife, Vendela and Ed Park, and they also had to come to grips with the, the ceiling of the audience and say like, well, these 5,000 or 10,000 readers are really good readers. They're super engaged. They care a lot. They write letters. They're very loyal and it has a value in the world. And that value might not be scalable and it might stay, you know, at that circumscribed place. But then you might work on something else that has a wider mainstream appeal. I think that that sort of mix is important too, but knowing what the limit is uh, for a certain project or a certain work of art, uh, that it's going to have a, a certain limited audience unless you, you know, uh, and, and that, that would leave you if you changed it and that you would, uh, you know, uh, you can't compromise the, the people that actually understand that work for those that, uh, that aren't going to, that even if you changed it, compromised it, diluted it, you might not even, uh, you're going to lose both sides. You're going to lose the, the people loyal to you and you might not attain anything else. It's like the dog looking at his reflection in the water and dropping the bone in his mouth in hopes of getting the one reflected back at him and he loses both. Um, but I think, you know, now, you know, you guys are in an interesting spot. I guess you the merge with New York Magazine, I think I was mm -hmm. hearing about in the lobby, yep. which, and um, you're in a, in a spot of growth. And so that's the fun place, you know, just let it grow and see where it goes and always remember that um, you'll know the very moment when your loyal audience isn't with you anymore. And holding on to them is everything. And holding on to that place where people really say like, okay, that's a place where I'm going to be told something that nobody else is telling me. They're going to tell it to me in an interesting way. Um, and they're not going to succumb to, you know, click, clickbait or uh, change their ways of doing things because uh, the metrics say this or that. You know, I think that, you know, that's always been the tension with any kind of media, whether it's ratings or, so you used to call it CPM, you know, cost per thousands of readers, um, all of these different things. There's always been some sort of metric in, in media, but you have to trust as the New York Times and the Washington Post and the New Yorker, all of these places that have gotten better during this time of you know mass media dilution, they've actually gotten better. And so sometimes you actually have to zig when everybody's zagging and, and make your product better and, and heighten the integrity at a time when it's being degraded elsewhere. I feel like I honestly could ask you questions and listen to you give like thoughtful, peaceful answers <laughs> for hours, but unfortunately I'm gonna have to, to, to wrap us. So let me ask you the question I always used to end, which is, what are three books you've read that have had an effect on you that you would recommend to the audience? Um, you know, I, I, uh, I'm just going to go with what I've been reading recently because I've been just plowing through Edith Wharton. Um, and I'd read, you know, Ethan Frome years ago, but misread that novel. And so I have this collection that has four of her novels and I'm uh, through three of four on to Age of Innocence next. But I uh, feel like I was... I'd, deprived the fact that I did not know her work that well earlier. I started with Custom of the Country, which is in a just a 
insanely brilliant and uh, satire of the Belle Epoque and sort of uh, social climber in New York and Paris in uh, the turn of the century, previous century. And um, it is so funny and so beautifully written and so uh, such a uh, scalpel sharp satire of that time. And then I read um, House of Mirth, which I loved a lot, but not as much. And it's not as funny, but still beautifully written. And Ethan Frome, I totally misread before. And um, it's so different than the other two books, but um, perfect in its way. And so I'm on to Age of Innocence next. But these are, uh, she, uh, and I, I have to chalk it up to a certain amount of sexism that her reputation isn't even bigger than it is, even though she's well known. Um, I think that she is the equal uh, of almost any American prose writer and um, should have the the readership of Jane Austen and Hemingway and Faulkner and everybody else. Um, so I think if anybody wants a a really incredibly entertaining and rich and uh, novel run to custom of the country. Dave Eggers, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ezra. Thank you to Dave Eggers. I'm going to go throw my phone out the window. <laughs> um, thank you to you for being here. I know we talked about how metrics are bad, but the only metric that is good is rating the show on Apple Podcasts so other people can find it. Just doesn't matter what you say. We don't care about the metric, just the discovery. Um, although, you know what? The important thing is that we have you here who are true fans and nobody else really matters. I think that's a lesson. Um, thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing Ezra Klein Shows of Vox Media, Podcast Network Production. And my email, as always, is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com.